Hey everybody, it's Jeff. I am so excited to bring this particular conversation to you today. Um, for those of you who know my work around grounded spirituality and my my deconstructing of the so-called non-duality movement, patriarchal spirituality, the new cage movement, a journey that in many ways began for me around the time that I was hanging out with Bhagavan Das and Ram Das and, and Sean Korn and making my film Carmageddon. Um, if you're familiar with that sort of trajectory, some part of my work, then you know that it's been hard for me to find people who are out there in the teaching community in particular and those who have followed and believed in ungrounded uh, frameworks and perspectives. It's been difficult for me to find people who really, really understand what I'm talking about and who are really preparing themselves to bring the new methodology, a more embodied, fleshy, heart-centered, feeling-based, horizontal rather than vertical, grounded spirituality. So not so long ago, I got some emails from somebody named Jessica Nathanson, who had been part of some of these communities and who has now come to realize how deadly dangerous they really are. And we talk about that in this conversation. I bring her story to you for your consideration. And uh, it's a real delight. It really is. I've had this opportunity. Uh, so let me just tell you quickly a bit about Jessica. After self-negating spirituality encouraged her to sacrifice too much of her precious humanity, Jessica Nathanson passionately is deconstructing the status quo of either-or non-duality and the tragically flawed no-self, no-suffering movement that is damaging so many hearts, minds, and souls in our world. She's building an online support community, Collective Soul Revival, for others who are recovering from movements like Neo-Advaita, which I call the Avoidant Movement, and journeying those who are ready to journey from self-abandonment to self-compassion and the glorious both and of celebrating all dimensions of our sacred humanity. In my words, presence as a whole being experience. This for me is the real spirituality and the direction we must go. So just listen to a little bit of Trevor Hall, the song Arrows from the perfectly appropriately titled The Fruitful Darkness. And then um, have a listen, Jessica, get into it. And uh, it's really, really, I think a really important conversation. I'm so, so delighted to bring your voice to the world. This journey's got me bleeding in a certain kind of feeling But I can never leave it Good God, I know I need it Arrows come straight for my heart Hey Jessica, good to be with you today Hi, it's great to be with you also yeah, we have lots to talk about. Let me just read a, a quick, well, not so quick quote from Grounded Spirituality that might sort of contextualize some of the non-duality kind of monkey business we're going to talk about today. So here's the quote. This is part of a dialogue I have in the book with a character named, semi-fictitious character named Michael. 
So I say to him, it seems you bought into the ego bashing that is intrinsic to the transcendence bypass movement. It's ironic because what motivates the quest for non-duality is often the unresolved elements themselves. Denying the ego is egoic. Its denial is often motivated by the unhealthy aspects of ego itself. The diminishment of the emotional body is motivated by the unhealed emotional body. The suggestion that everything is an illusion is motivated by a fear of reality. And the belief that simply witnessing the pain body nullifies it is motivated by the pain body run amok. Witnessing our pain doesn't dissipate it, it strengthens it. If you want to dissipate your pain, get inside it and work it through until it's thoroughly mended. And when it's truly healed, it will both create a richer, fuller life and reveal its essential nature as grist for the soul mill itself, the granules of glory that grow us closer to the God self. How can we evolve without this fodder for our expansion, the soil of our lived in experience? You have bought into a kind of nihilistic worldview that desecrates everything that nourishes and grows us forward. How can you escape into a full life while leaving the self in your dust, ironically, in your flight from those characteristics, you merely concretize their significance, close quote. So, you connected with me as someone who I'm now understanding to be, and I certainly relate to this, kind of an investigative journalist with respect to what I broadly call patriarchal spirituality um, and what others call non-duality and you know, the Advaita movement, I call it the Avoid movement. I mean, there's all kinds of terms for this. But because you're you're getting out there now and you're telling your story of what you realized about that movement in the heart of kind of rejecting the notion of realization that they were trumpeting. Give us a sense of how you entered into that way of being and that exploration. And then let's just talk about some of the things that you've realized. Sounds great. And that was a a really poignant quote that you read that was nice because I think it it brought up a little bit of a emotion, emotionality for me, which is good because it's um, it's been about five, almost six years now since I came out of my Neo Advaita kind of haze. Um, And there was a very long period of intense grief and emotional torment. But the good thing is that over time, I've kind of moved through that. So now I'm able to go back into it to really, like you said, investigate kind of what what's going on there and, and help mm-hmm. other people that are that are really trapped in it. It's been what I've been spending a lot of time on lately. And how might you define the Neo Advaita movement? I mean, what is that just for people who don't know what we're yeah. talking about before we deconstruct yeah, it's, it? It's to do that. And um personally I for me I equate Neo Advaita with modern contemporary self-negating non-duality and i think specifically the instantaneous enlightenment where you know you hear sort of like the direct path where you know there's there's no real long preparatory path it's sort of uh you know these different direct paths within eastern traditions that have been decontextualized and brought to the west as an instant enlightenment sort of packaging and so what, what is it that, before we get into your actual experience, what is it within your psyche or your psycho-emotional roots do you feel drew you in that direction? I love your questions. I would say that it's certainly my 
hereditarily, that's not a word, let's just say hereditary, what I inherited, which was a long lineage of an existential sort of angst or sort of melancholy and even at times depression. So there's that. And I would also say just this real kind of curiosity and being sort of drawn towards deep exploration of the mystery of life. And so what was your first sort of stepping into this particular exploration? Well, it's funny because I had pulled this out recently, which was oh, my Michael Singer's ridiculous yeah, book, the Untethered yes. Soul, which has touched many lives in good and bad ways. Mm. Um, I keep going back through it, and it's funny because I used to give this book to everyone, mm. and I truly believed that it was incredible for everyone. But when I started reading it again a year ago, I couldn't get past the first ten pages because mm. I was appalled by what I was reading. Anyway, so I read that. Um, when I was, you know, I was 25, I was very lost. I was sort of in this existential conundrums and feeling like I couldn't be present in life and, you know, neurotic, ruminating thinking. And I picked up this book and it seemed to, you know, to really have the answers. It was kind of that the beginning of feeling like I'd been like let in on that big secret that, you know, it was kind of a, a whistleblower on personal reality. And this sort of beginning of the beginning of the end of me, <laughs> if you will. But it was, the, you know, this idea that you're not your thoughts. It started kind of in a slow, slow way, but you're not your thoughts. And the, you know, the reason why you suffer is solely because of your thinking and your desire for things to ever be different than what they are and your preferences and ambitions and, and all of that. Men love, like, men love blaming the mind, don't they? They love to blame the mind for all their problems so they don't have to deal with the unresolved emotional material that sources the chatter of the mind. Yeah, and, and women women do it too, but it's mm. certain that a lot of women have been influenced by these men because there really aren't that many. There's several female teachers now, but they've all been disciples or learned from from men. These traditions where I learned a new word recently, which was androcentric. Mm. That all these enlightenment traditions were, you know, they were fully crafted by a male perspective. That's for sure. So you started with uh, the singer uh, inviting you in the direction of seeing an impersonal experience as reality. This is sort of high comedy as far as I'm concerned. But and then what? And then enter Meister Eckhart. <laughs> Eckhart Tolle. So the oh, power. Oh, oh, also known as his real name is Ulrich. I just want to state that that the That's master, right. the master of form, allegedly of formlessness, was so affixed to form that he had an ego and need to change his name to Eckhart. Of but course. Yes, and um, the power of now. And I was thinking the other day, would anyone have picked it up if it was called the power of self annihilation? Which mm -hmm. highly doubt. It was very smartly sort of packaged as just a way to be present in self-help. I say the beginning of the industry of self-destruction to disguise as self-development. Um, right. So we have ego death in the self-help section of Barnes and Noble. But back to the story. So I read Eckhart, The Power of Now, and I'm utterly blown away, like a lot of people are when they read it. And it really was the entry of that what is the sort of the one problem, one solution formula of no self, no suffering. Right. So, so you're you're go to bed suicidal, 
you have some kind of an experience in the night and you wake up in the morning in a state of what he calls enlightenment, sit happily, as he described on park benches for two years in a state of persistent and perpetual bliss. Psychologists call that dissociation. Patriarchal spirituality calls that awakening. Yeah. But how do you think he survived on that bench? Do you think people brought Well, I mean, I believe, I, I may be mistaken, but I think he was living in Canada. I don't know if he had a job or if he was on welfare. I mean, if you're on welfare, it can cover your bills. Um, that, that'd be kind of blissful for a certain brief period of time for some of us, I think. And I don't know. I mean, I think the way he describes it is, I mean, to me, when I read the intro to The Power of Self-Avoidance, which I've called it for years, I, um, I just didn't buy it. I just, I don't believe trauma is resolved in Overnight, I, I think he found a seam that allowed him to stay alive in a suicidal consciousness. And if there's nothing wrong with going out into the world and teaching that the seam that you found is a way for people to stay alive until they're ready to drop back into their bodies. And for me, the giveaway with Tole, I used to call him Dead Heart Tole, the giveaway for me was that I couldn't feel any aliveness coming off of him. There was, he, he, I would fall asleep when he talked. And I thought, this is a very strange version of awakening or aliveness when the body seems to be completely dead. And all I hear is a really powerhouse mind bashing the mind, but yet living inside of the mind. It's the great irony of patriarchal spirituality. They blame the mind and then they go meditatively into the mind in order to tame the mind. They don't want to drop down into the feelings yeah. of the body because we know what happens. Then they become suicidal again. So I don't know how it worked. I mean, I think that he became famous. Oprah, who I think has a bypassy tendency, was drawn to this for her own reasons. It got sold all over the world, and then now it's getting deconstructed because reality is forcing all of us to ground in our bodies and realizing that it just doesn't work that way. And you don't call your tender wounded as a pain body like you're talking about a car part. And it all starts to look ridiculous and dissociated. But at that but, time, it was like yeah. an opportunity to see ourselves through a different lens. And, exactly. It was very uh, new, radical thing that helped a lot of people. So it is, I think we talked about that before, that I don't think either of us are denying that there are some good presence pointers in there and things like that. But I, I say with all of these things that it's a little bit like, and I didn't make this metaphor up, but it's a bit of like a nectar laced with poison. That's kind of what you drink with a lot of these people. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's fine. I agree with you. I mean, I think that when you call it enlightenment, we have a problem. Yes. But when you say I'm a really fucked up guy and I absolutely haven't resolved tons of stuff, but I found some sort of meditative or witnessing oriented techniques that have helped me to get a bit of distance and perspective on my stuff, then I don't have a problem with that. But when you frame that dead energy as something enlightened, I don't think at the end of the day you're actually helping anybody. I think that for real serious trauma survivors, you're leaving them farther away from the field of selfhood where the healing has to occur. And I've had many, many people write me before killing themselves and people who knew people who had. And quite often they read these kinds of books and it led in a horrific direction because they became dissociated and were convinced that nothing was real, nothing they felt, yes. none of their trauma, none of their wounds. We'll talk about your experience with that. And that's what got me going. I thought, well, this isn't really helpful. It's, it's helpful for a relatively intact person 
to pull up and out of the neurotic Western mind or something and get perspective. But hardcore trauma survivors should really not have anything to do with these kinds of teachings. No, they shouldn't. And I also don't, like you said, I, I don't, I think it harms at this point, I think it may harm more people than it helps to yes. have the one problem, one solution things that turn you against yourself and your mind. But it helped me immensely with thinking. I mean, it, the problem is that it took me from an overactive mind to a vacuous mind at a certain mm. point. None of these teachings are about bringing anything into balance. Mm-hmm. I think that when you see it from the perspective that it's radical and balanced, just swinging things from one extreme to the other to see how how unhealthy that is. Um, well it's just not necessary to do that. The thing that his book started doing, and I didn't really get super hardcore until I got into um, like life without, without a center with Jeff Foster and oh, then God. Yeah. at the end of your world. And um, yeah, so it sort of begins that sort of Orwellian truth inversion, right? Where it's the true self, you're a false self. So your problem is a case of a mistaken identity and there's yeah. an imposter inside of you. And that's, you <laughs> essentially who, who, who thinks your name is Jessica Nathanson? How dare you? Yeah, and th- that thinks that they're a person. You th- you think you exist as an individual, and that's why you suffer. And you're also pathological. So one of the things I picked up from Eckhart Tolle's book that's really frightening is that making everyone into having a pathology merely because they think that they're a person. So in a way, it's pathologizing humanity. Well, and, and that's. And ironically, calling it the new earth, I used to call it the new Mars, because there's no honoring of the human experience and any of this or lineage or story or booby or ancestry or gefilte fish. None of it, any of it, all of it. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a good uh, story for as long as it lasts, but it doesn't last for very long. Not even really a good one, because it would be an unpopulated earth at that point. And I think it's actually quite ominous when you look at a title like The End of Your World by Adyashanti to hear that it's really an apocalypse. (laughs) And it's not being said that it's anything other than that. But Mm. anyway, so, yeah. So then you kind of get into this false ultimatum, which is like you can either suffer forever, you know, trapped in this me prison with ignorance and being asleep, or you can commit egocide. And I say it in that way because a lot of the people that I was reading were talking about it in that way. Ego death, destroy, annihilate, eradicate, burn down. You know, it's instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, these guys actually rip out the bathtub and burn the house down. So it's that idea of that kind of divine suicide of die before you die to realize there's, you know, no such thing as death. And, and I've come back lately to this phrase, and I think it's a good example of the really kind of mysterious and confusing weird inversions of language that is often used, which is only the false can be destroyed. You've probably heard something to that extent. So the idea being, well, don't worry, because all you're going to be lose. there's nothing to lose except for lies. There's nothing to lose except for illusion and delusion. And who doesn't want to rid themselves of delusion? <laughs> but really that you know, if it's something that's temporary, it's not real, which at this point, I realize that that's just a complete fallacy. But yeah, so that uh, divine suicide. And for me, somebody who had a terror, terror of mortality, this helped me incredibly, this whole kind of, you know, 
dissolve the one who is afraid to die, dissolve the one who's suffering, self, no suffering. And it does, it can work temporarily, maybe for some long term, but we know what the sacrifices are to, to do such a thing. But yeah, I mean, from there on, I went through sort of what I see as kind of like a funnel that people are kind of pushed through on this path. And, um, you know, thousands of people that you hear from are they end up in that addiction phase where they're addicted to these videos. And you'll find it funny that a lot of people find Eckhart Tolle's voice very (laughs) comforting and soothing. I mean, I thought he was hilarious. I thought he was this hilarious spiritual comedian, which he really is. You know, he had some strange mystique to him. But anyways, it was his voice. It was Alan Watts. It was Adyashanti. It was Rupert Spire. These sort of hypnotizing voices that were helping me stay clean of my addiction to self. Helping me, you know, when I astray back into thinking that I'm real or that problems are really a problem, etc. So who knows how many hours I spent doing that. And all the people that are coming to uh, to me now and who are part of a, well, a growing support community are trying to kick that addiction of listening and listening and listening um, and just being sort of pummeled with these derealization and depersonalization messages um, that really does start to indoctrinate you in a way um, and, and brainwash you. But um, the next thing that I got to was the life without a center and I mean, for me at the time, it was like, this was such a holy grail for me. And I I really, for a long time, felt really nothing but happy and liberated and even, you know, feeling more mature because I felt like I didn't need anything outside of me. I now realize, and I think that you probably will appreciate this, is the idea that, you know, people who were neglected growing up or experienced um, like psychological trauma from caregivers, that really what they're telling you is self, self-soothing, self that you don't need, you know, you don't need anyone else to soothe you when, you know, you're, you could be somebody who was not soothed as a baby or a child, you know, starving for the attunement and affection of another person. And they're telling you that you don't need that. So, Yes, a double-edged sword. Again, it's great to not be overly dependent on external situations, but mm. you know, radical isolationism is not the solution either. So, yeah, so this next thing that happens is this idea that the reason why you're depressed is because you're trying to hold up a sense of being somebody and really kind of goading you. Just just drop that, you know, just unburden yourself of a self. <laughs> And that also really spoke to me. But but really, when you look back to it, I think people are more depressed in terms of holding up a self. I think it's more that a lot of times you're holding up a sense of self that is based on what other people want you to be. And you haven't really created or discovered what feels like an authentic sense of Jessica or Jeff. Yes. Or yeah. So let me speak to that for a second. So yes. I, I think this is this is the trick of it all. So. So they show up, and really, the way I see almost all of them um, is that they're all hardcore trauma survivors who don't understand that you can be in the self and have a joyous experience because they haven't had one. So they all they know is suffering the self. So it makes sense they would want to find some sense of sort of placid in equanimity or something, uh, the neutralization of the self. 
in order to just have a break from their suffering. There's no ecstasy there, really, because they're, they call it bliss, but there's no bliss because there's no self to be blissed. But, you know, I think, and I think Byron Katie's a good example of this. She tells a very similar silly story at the beginning of her main book about being a mess and then waking up and she's not a mess anymore. What, what I find interesting is that what, what they're appealing to often in even just day-to-day people who are not hardcore sufferers is the fact that they haven't found out who they really are, say, on a sacred purpose level. In a conditioned world, in a overwhelming survivalistic world where you become what you have to become to put food on the table, most people have never thought about who they are on an authentic level. And that's true. The problem is, the trick is, they're not leading you there. They're leading you further away from that because the further you get away from the self and the experience of embodiment, the further you get away from identifying the true self and the authentic experience of embodiment. So that's the game. We're going to turn around your story, and sometimes it's good. You go, yeah, I could look at it a different way through a non-conditioned lens. But if the real goal of that is to take you so far away into this Buddhistic land of nothingness, you've actually not served a higher purpose for anybody on this planet. And now they are miles and miles and far, far, far away from being able to come back down into their bodies and figure out, make distinctions between false self, true self, false path, true path, survivalistic identifications, authentic identifications. You will not find it in no self land. Go there for a while if you need to clear some patterning, but you've got to come back into this beautiful, glorious, human story in order to find the story that's right for you right and that's of course you know the the story is is such a massive yeah they love that they love to bash the story as though every single part of my my booby and the soup and the building me and the loving me all of that is annihilated she's annihilated it's all because she was missing thinking she loved her grandson jeffrey was a complete misidentification she had no idea who she was she had no idea who i was so there couldn't possibly be anything genuine about that experience it's such a disparaging and discrediting of the beautiful elements of the human story in a quest for the annihilation of every part of it that you end up well tell us where you end up yeah. And I'll just say quickly about the story part is that the sad thing is that they're, they, they've reduced a human to a story or a person to a story when a story is a part of a human. It's not the whole thing. And they're saying that. So is also you were saying that's part of the, the kind of trick or the game, whatever you're going to call it, is that what really gets programmed into you is that the authentic self is nobody. So any type of personal sense of self is immediately inauthentic. Yeah, the absolute self is the only self there is. There can't be a uniquely Jessica Nathanson path or purpose encoded in you with the bones of your being that you're born to live out and bring to the world. All of that is preposterous. All there is is this amorphous, non-individuated, absolute selfhood state or something. And it's it's heartbreaking because you get the capital S self the lowercase s self and the fact that they give that amorphous awareness or whatever you call it the name self really i think really fucks with people's heads and i mean it makes sense of course you know along this path there's the dissolution where i experienced uh you know a massive you know what i would have called sort of like an ego blowout you know of suddenly it's just boundless kind of open awareness with no sense of self or even being, 
encased within a physical body and it's radically radically serene and there's no perceiver etc and you know i kept wanting to deepen into that and so these are kind of the days of boundlessness and you hear that word over and over the boundless pristine you know immaculate perfect uh you know infinite awareness and there's a lot of insights here that were helpful but mm-hmm. boundlessness became my sort of started to become more of a a default and what I later realized, and this comes back to trauma, is that, you know, what so many people need is not boundlessness. Our problem for so many is not that we have strong, too strong boundaries. So we do often have over defensiveness, but especially trauma survivors, it's, you know, that you need to strengthen a healthy set of boundaries. So that was only being further eroded. And so there was this very slow kind of erosion of personality and personhood. This, So I wanted to just get to this point where looking back, there was a real, for some of these people, was a real like language of violence and a sense of violence in this whole sort of waking up thing. And so, you know, I had... And again, when I name names of people, I'm fully aware that there are good aspects of them. But when I got to Adyashanti in the end of your world, there was a lot of talk of things like, you know, the maybe it wasn't that book specifically, but there's one quote that I remember that was like, every moment of transcendence is a mortal blow to the ego. There was, again, all this talk of like burning down and eradicating and just it was just a, a stage of, of radical destruction or deconstruction and breaking everything down into its constituent parts and it like you said before sort of like evaporating into dust but I'm just going to speed up a little bit to get so we can get more to the present day and I've told this story a lot and you'll hear it in other conversations but that kind of slow erosion of personality and that everyone experiences that goes down these paths ends up finding, you know, the the kind of perils of it is this loss of motivation, this, but what it came with was also more access to these like states of radical contentment. But that radical contentment is a demotivating type of contentment because it just feels like there is nothing to do. There's nothing to say. There's nowhere else I need to be. Why go to a concert? You know, why you know, go hang out with friends and have conversations with illusory dream characters. That's what it felt like. So yeah, it just got to this point where more and more I became just an emptied out sort of, you know, this is speeding up a bit, but shell of a person. And I'm going to read another Shanti quote, because I think it is important to, to see some of these things that we often don't necessarily hear when talking about them is that, Without emotional investment in the ego's point of view, what is left but a what is left of ego but a hollow shell with a little bit of personality mixed in. And looking back, I think, wow, it just so it's such a foreboding or for, foreshadowing of of what happened and what happens to so many people is getting to that point where they feel dehumanized, they feel subhuman. I call some people subhuman superheroes, or that's what they feel like to me or what I felt like to myself at some point, but just realizing that, you know, we've gone from these outgoing, enthusiastic people who thrived on connection and, you know, adventure and things like that in a healthy way are now sort of, they're not interested in, you know, I get heartbreaking emails from people that are like, you know, I used to love art and I used to love reading and music. And now 
all kind of just dead to me. I've gotten several emails of people who said they dropped out of school because they were, you know, they were passionate about, you know, X subject. And now it just feels meaningless or just that they are in such a state of, you know, radical derealization and dissociation that they can't keep up with it. So, you know, loss of a lot of your passions um, and just feeling like you've become a zombie. And that did happen to me at one point. For as much as I had become, you know, awakened and ego dissolved, it was just this sort of really scary feeling of like kind of made a strange deal with the devil. And really what got me in the end to starting to need to get out of it was realizing that I could barely have relationships anymore. I could hardly carry on conversations without being exhausted after the first sentence and just really that kind of, like I said, that sort of, I, you know, I had listened to Rupert Spira a lot. And one of my big pointers was kind of like falling back into what is prior to all content. And I had really kind of, I'd really kind of been sucked into this background awareness where it felt like it was very hard for me to come forward into the, the, the land of self and interaction and to to gather myself in from that boundlessness was very hard um and yeah so relationships i realized you know am i going to am i going to sacrifice having you know rich intimate relationships for the rest of my life you know i might be able to do that and just be in like serene no self land but started to get to me that like that might not be what i really want and then of course you know it did spin out into some like harrowing loss of agency and some real kind of dissociative episodes that were, you know, not healthy and very scary. So I, I'm i going to speed through this part too, but I have to thank Jeff Foster at the same time, because while he was the one that led me into this life without a center, he also had realized over time that he had been part of Neo Advaita, which he called a loveless cult. And at a retreat of his, I went and um, his whole tune had changed to not self-abandonment, but self-befriending and self-compassion. And just the whole thing collapsed right there. I'd never heard such a concept. And just like, if I had been told that instead of just transcendence, wouldn't I have gone for that? Like, this seems so much. Depends so when. Much. Depends when. Depends when. Depends when. You're right. But at this point, it was like, I just felt devastated that I had gone down this path of the self, self-eradication when I could have been on this other more humanistic path. And that's when it was just like rapid fire, seeing all the kind of tragic elements of of um, of the no self, no suffering path and, um, you know, feeling like I had really kind of died in a way and I was sort of in an afterlife that, uh, you know, it was a kind of period of like rebirthing and uh, reauthoring a new sense of self. Yeah, I mean, it, it took years for me to get to get through a lot of grief and a lot of what, what happened was all my trauma started coming back. <laughs> I kind of had a, you know, some people call it Kundalini. I don't relate to it fully as that. But what happened at the moments that I started turning towards myself with self-compassion, that everything I had been pushing away just rushed to the surface, like Pandora's box, you know, and realizing that I had really been, I'd worked through some stuff in therapy during this time, but there was a hell of a lot of it still there. Um, and it was showing me that. And that the path forward was self-compassion and 
things like inner child work, a lot of the stuff that you talk about, um, and really opening my heart to suffering rather than trying to, you know, get rid of it, burning down the one who, (laughs) burning down the one who suffers, which is what a lot of these people say is the, the sacred purpose of suffering is to basically, you know, self-immolation, if you will, which is Aren't they funny people? You know, um, and this may just be my sort of male perspective or intuition or something, but when I was, yeah, absolutely. So this is coming from not Jeff Brown, just perspective. And not Jeff Brown says that um, I would watch the Eckhart and Jashanti and, you know, even Jack Cornfield and, and certainly Jeff Foster and all of them. And all I saw, apart from the desperately egoic need to be seen as the one while completely bashing wanting to allegedly dissolve the ego was anger they all just seemed such like such angry angry men angry at life angry at self angry at feelings angry at the feminine angry at the body remember i can't remember i think it was tole was maybe it was uh, tammy simon they were doing some kind of conversation about 9-11. It was just the way he was sort of mocking the people. And I thought, I mean, Eckhart just strikes me as just a, an absolutely enraged human being. That's just my personal response to him. And I just think all of them are just angry fathermuckers masquerading as some kind of blissful Captain Bliss characters. But none of them actually ever feel happy to me. Like it... It never feels to me like they've achieved anything that feels good or buoyant or light or soft or surrendered or sweet. It just feels like some some kind of a 18-hour-a-day meditation clamoring for pseudo-equanimity until their partner shows up and they have an argument and realize how super fucked up they really are. Nobody uh, questions their ideology. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Well, and, or just or just what comes up in the presence of the human experience when you haven't been able to convince everybody around you to go no self. I mean, then you've got a real problem. You're married to a selfer and you're a no selfer. And oh my God, where do we go from there? Other divorce happens, I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But of course, in one half of it, there's really nobody there to divorce. So I don't even know how they go through a legal process as a non-entity, but that's a whole other question. So now, so in terms of anger, where do you sit with your anger? not only in relation to early life experiences, stuff that you pushed away, but do you feel angry? And how are you experiencing anger in relation to what you've now realized about these very dangerous teachings? Yeah. And this is a hard thing for me because I also realized like anger is something that I've repressed my whole life because I had an angry, an angry caregiver who kind of, you know, stifled my own anger and I learned to see anger as just something awful because it wasn't healthy, wasn't expressed in a healthy way. But so I've been through real, real days of anger and rage because there is a lot of people who are, their lives are being completely devastated in unhealthy ways and people are dying. That's at the extreme. But, you know, when you get emails from hundreds of people in varying states of dysfunction and down maddening rabbit holes of derealization and depersonalization and nihilism and isolation, just horrible, horrible things. And we're not talking about a handful of people here. You know, it's a, I would say there could be millions, who knows, 
You think of how many millions? Oh, no, I think there were millions. Uh, I mean, and I, a large Facebook group, and I'm imagining that you hear stories like this. Called, I've received thousands and thousands of these. Emails. You know what this stuff is made of, and it is tragic. It's, really hard. tragic. It's, it's really hardcore. And, you know, I think apart from the suicidal ideation that often emerges for trauma survivors who are trapped in these places, you know, we're, it's very obvious that our species is in trouble. Our capacity to live on this planet is, is questionable, all the rest of that. And, you know, for me, with so many people dissociated, not with their boots on the ground, not with their hearts on their sleeves, not finding something purposeful to bring to the world, what are the chances that we're going to be able to actually preserve the species? Because, and there are all many forms of dissociation in our world. I mean, this is where we're talking about one of them. But I think it's one that because of the way in which spirituality was set up where nobody was allowed to diss it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I went through years of this in social media, posting stuff when nobody was, and, and people would come on and, you know, just bash the fact that I had critically reviewed spirituality. They, and these were people who were critically reviewing political world. They were activists. They were all kinds of things, but something, somehow the guru had worked this so fucking brilliantly that yeah. spirituality became something that you never critically review. And as a result, people who walk down these roads don't have books to turn to, as an example, don't have other teachings to listen to that will remind them that what they're doing may, in fact, be dangerous. They can still proceed and they'll make their own choice. But it's important that they have all of these perspectives available to them before they walk down a road that might kill them. That's right. And um yeah, I mean, in terms of anger also and just some insight into, you know, um, how much work it's going to take and takes a lot of people to extricate themselves from this is that there really is something that you realize is that you're radically deprogrammed, you know, that you're everything you think is true is not. And then you're reprogrammed with a new rigid authoritarian ideology that you often don't see is there, especially if you've, you know, really gone deep into kind of dissolution of concepts and that type of stuff that you come out of it. And, you know, I did, I just realized I am fucked up on concepts, you know, the absolute and the relative and the big self and the little self and all of this stuff that, you know, I know a lot of people that are now calling uh, cult recovery specialists because they're, I've been learning a lot about cult um, dynamics and spiritual abuse. And there is a real pattern of the criteria, a lot of the criteria of, of that. Of course, absolutely. These teachings are all cultist teachings um, on every level. The, the nature of patriarchal spirituality is cultist. It's, it's designed. It's, it, there's always a God-jectified guru in these structures. They're always denying the veracity of the ego while taking the one seat as the one who knows. I mean, it's all of this is cultist. Yeah. And particularly confusing and dangerous if the culture in is one that has convinced you that the self isn't real. So now you don't have a self to move from, to intuit from, to react from, to enrage from, to claim this is bullshit once you start to realize you're being that fucked that's with. Valid because with heartbreaking thing with so many people, it's just that constant gaslighting of that's just the ego talking, you know, and, and you can't you know, you can't understand this from rationality. So any way that you're basically, you know, barred from being able to break it down rationally, because you've been so kind of shamed and twisted into thinking that this is just beyond logic. So anything that you say or anyone else says is automatically can't touch it. 
Um, so there's so it's many- a total mind fuck. It's just a it's- complete mind fuck while they're busy bashing and blaming the mind for every single issue that we have. And meanwhile, they're working from within the mind to control the mind while telling you that your mind is exactly. It's so filled with irony. All it of this a long time is- to unravel the the matrix, the matrix of it. And it can be really shocking to see the extent of it. But you picked up on something important in terms of the survival of the species and everything that's happened, you know, in the last how many years with you know, authoritarian powers that be in politics and globalism. And, you know, I would even say, you know, like the woke, the woke culture. Um, the pseudo woke culture. Well, we get back yes. into sleeping, we're going to go down another rabbit hole. But just this real sense lately of people are not independent thinkers anymore. And, you know, free yeah. thought and free speech is under attack everywhere you look. And then I turn back to what I had been through in these, um, you know, these uh, anti-intellect type of spiritualities are really are really not going to help us to, you know, resist being programmed by any authoritarian power because because that's not real. Well, it's eroding your it's it's crippling. It's crippling our thinking. And I just yeah. one of the things that I've come to is that, yes, a lot of us suffer a lot from overthinking and ruminating, but it's not about getting rid of thinking. It's about healing patterns of thinking. And it's about thinking in healthier ways and thinking more critically. I've come to, you know, this real value of like wise, critical discernment. I'll even say that, you know, I'm become a healthy skeptic because it's like 99% of the stuff out there in spirituality to me is deceptive. It's dangerous. It's, you know, it's taking people further into the dark than, than into the light. And so yeah, in terms of looking at evolution, we really have to turn towards uh, turn towards thinking in more evolved ways rather than not thinking or deadening yeah. them. And living our life with a center so that we can make clear distinctions between what's real and what isn't. So we can spot the, that's real. That's real spirituality so that we can make the distinction between the tyrant who masquerades as benevolent, which is happening and has always happened. It is certainly happening right now in Canada and, you know, justifies the clampy down of freedom of speech and expression and, you know, and masquerades it behind all kinds of diversionary cliches that will fool people into thinking that they're cared for when in fact all they want is be to be the one globalist leader of all the globalist leaders. I mean it's it's becoming more and more obvious to me that and and it's it's problematic because technology allows them to overwhelm consciousness more than it was already overwhelmed by marketing constructs and gives them powers and access and data and information to manipulate consciousness. And the real war between a freedom-oriented, critical, grounded, centered consciousness and whatever that other thing is, which is the annihilation of the self in a different way, but really the same way. I mean, I realized at some point that for me, Tole and any politician who was really annihilating the self was the same guy was the same guy yeah yes so going forward for you now so so you're deep you're you're beautifully and brilliantly and i i'm i'm so proud of you even though i you know i mean i've only just met you but i'm i'm so delighted that you know, I've been doing this stuff for a long time, and I've been calling out many of those people that you mentioned. In fact, every one of them I've called out in different ways. And I seldom find, and people resonate with my work, and they agree with parts of it, and it's beautiful. But it's hard to find people out there who are 
not only deconstructing it, but interested in crafting a new methodology that is a more grounded, reality-based, truly consciousness-inclusive, self-honoring, distinction-making, critically thinking version of spirituality that really begins and maybe perhaps even ends within the body itself rather than in the float away from it. Um, so I'm just kudos to you for, for doing this. It gives me um, hope for humanity, people who like me who write these things and we have followings and it's wonderful to be supported, but we always know that there are millions of other people that need to hear this message and we can't get it to them because the drumbeat of dissociation is so loud and so powerful and so coercive on many different levels and so insincere and therefore more effective as a marketing construct. Um, So apart from deconstructing it and in the deconstructing of it, and we need decades of that, uh, don't let anyone ever tell you enough is enough of that. In terms of the building of something different um, and soon, where are you with that? Yeah, it's a great question because I am very much, you know, I go back and forth between those two things, the deconstruction and the reconstruction. Reconstruction, right. What I have turned towards, it's a harder sell than, you know, the dissociation or in a lot of ways, but it's really that, you know, suffering can serve the purpose of breaking our hearts open, open to our suffering, to our trauma, open to other people, to empathy, to compassion and and really a, a sense of of real camaraderie and unity and interconnection with the human race and with the human condition as, you know, really um, being, being a member of a human family, if you will. And so I think that, you know, a big thing for me is, you know, taking the transcendent down into the, you're going to call it the personal or the imminent or whatever, but healing that split of spirit versus matter, which is extremely dual and what's happening in, you know, what's being considered non-dual. So healing that split. And then rather than, you know, going to this kind of oneness only, no separateness is really, is really uh, widening our perspective, which is, you know, taking in the whole, but then to act and engage in the world with that wider angle view um, that I, I've thought of a little bit as kind of like a world centric view. And I think that we need that. And I also think really that really encouraging us to see ourselves in our small existence is actually extremely significant. Yeah. And each person, you know, that your individuality is not, is you are special, you know, this whole thing of, trying to be special or thinking you're special is a problem and self-centered is that everyone's special because they exist. And really um, for me, I think that part of spirituality is wonder and awe and is being able to, for me, it's gone. And I would like to suggest for others, like rather than seeking this sort of like spiritual perfection or perfectionism is like preciousness, like returning to having the eyes to see the immense miracle of you and of me and there's so much suffering, but if we open our heart to it and help, you know, allow that to um, deepen our, you know, interwovenness um, that that can really be what serves as a foundation. And then of course, you know, this, this both and the, this either or thinking in every sphere of the world, really, we have to, we have to move to both and thinking and yeah, in terms of evolution, I think it's much more about that 
you know, I've said the uni duel, which I get from from Tim Freak is being individuals who are also unified with one another. I can say it's been a little bit of a, I could say a path from self-abandonment to, to self-compassion. But yeah, I think that, that that's a big part of it. And, you know, I, I do want to say to to people that are, you know, in these paths that say that, you know, in order to have oneness, you have to disappear is that, no, we get to be a part of that oneness and that we are, yeah, just that everything is is so significant because because it's here and it's real. And you've said in real men. And I had a, like a kind of new understanding of that. And you had said it and it's really you had said something like being all that being all that you are or all that we are. Yeah. And being presence as a whole being experience. I exactly. mean, that's really what we're talking about. Um, right, right. Every every aspect of this experience welcomed at the table and the honoring the absolute honoring of the uniqueness of your particular path and purpose and orientation in this lifetime and and absolutely distinguishing all of that from the malconditioning and the survivalistic adaptations and disguises that have oriented our consciousness but again not moving away from the self learning how to you know i mean i i think it would be an interesting question if we could get this oneness right i mean oneness like me one me you one, if we could just get that right, and then ask the question, how does this interface with the oneness? I would be interested to see how all of this looks from that perspective, but we keep jumping out of the healing and integrating and becoming present for the oneness, the Jeffness, the Jessicaness. We get out, we leave it so quickly because of the pain and the discomfort and the dissociation, the reasons to dissociate. That I don't think we have any idea what we're talking about when we're talking about exclusivity or non-duality of consciousness, because we're not inclusive or even non-dual or unified within the self itself. And yeah. my work really is to convey to people that that's where we're at as a species. That's where we need to stay. And then when we get that right, let's start talking about whether or not we even have any interest in or have a totally different perspective on this whole question of something called non-duality or transcendence like we're birds may all just seem like the dumbest and most ridiculous thing that was really birthed in the discomforts of the human experience and now that we're more comfortable in our bodies maybe we don't even have any interest yeah and you said inclusivity and that's another piece of it is wholeness and wholeness means including everything you know there was in this non-dual world that wholeness could be achieved by rejecting something they call it non-duality it's preposterous if they bash the body, the ego, personhood, the selfhood, the feelings, yeah. the story, everything, yeah. everything human has been removed from the non-dual field. I think yeah. that's just called the celebration of automatism or the becoming of a robot. And that's not really any kind of a non-duality that's going to serve yeah. us. Yeah. But, and wholeness means embracing a lot of shit that we don't want to embrace, but it's yeah. worth it. It really is. I don't think we have a choice at this stage yeah. of the game. So thank you for your courage, for rebraving yourself in this lifetime. And I look forward to reconnecting when you reach the next stage of whatever this is that's beautifully happening inside of you. Well, I deeply appreciate having discovered you and being a part of this. And I can, if I can just say that for anyone who's listening, who um, is seeking support with going through any of this, that um, will put hopefully somewhere if there's a description somewhere yeah. uh, 
contact because I am I am starting an online community soon for people who are recovering from all of this. Um, in Great. So we'll have we'll have those links. That's perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. Over the moon and through stars.